And so uh, we're just going to go through a couple simple vignettes, and we're going to go through questions. I'm going to have the panel address these questions, but please also feel free to send up your questions as we go through um, these two cases. So I actually have three, but I think for in, in the interest of time, we'll uh, address a UC case and a Crohn's case. So the first case is an adolescent female with chronic UC who is admitted with active symptoms of diarrhea, bleeding, and anemia, um, had been treated um, for the past six months prior to hospitalization uh, on infliximab, had therapeutic levels without antibodies, but comes in anemic, hypoalbuminemic with elevated inflammatory markers. She's certainly having bloody diarrheal stools. She you can see that from the anemia, plus what you see clinically, but she is not toxic, not febrile. Um, the family is clearly very worried, but they do not want to pursue surgery yet. So going through the initial set of questions I have for the panel, I'm first going to pose all the questions. But the first question I have to the panel are, what are your options and how would you position them in terms of therapies um, for both acute induction and then even thinking down the road of maintenance if steroids um, and anti-TNF agents have not worked. So um, if uh, I'm going through some different options, antibiotic cocktail, fetalizumab, other biologics. And then the second question we're going to sort of address from the surgical standpoint, and again, we've um, had Dr. Von Allman's perspective, how would you initiate the discussion in regards to surgery? And then as you initiate this discussion, what are some of the issues that you would address that are related to surgery? So let's first start um, with my colleagues to my far left in terms of how you would even start this discussion in this patient. So it sounds like they really did not respond to anti-TNFs. I mean, this is happening more and more often, actually. We're seeing a lot of patients with acute severe UC with this PK, which we're often not able to catch up with. And um, patients who are failing IV steroids, obviously the obvious is rule out C. diff and rule out CMV, which is a basic no matter what is going on. And then I think what we have to explain is that the same PK issues that drive anti-TNFs drive vetalizumab and probably ustekinumab. We don't have as much data at the moment for that because we weren't using it as much in acute severe UC, although I agree with Bob that there is some data to support it both in adults and some pediatric off-label experience. But I think at this point you're really looking at does the patient have any drug levels? Mm-hmm. How desperate are the family to avoid um, surgery. And at that point, you may want to bring in sort of the Chicago approach, which is to think about tacrolimus or cyclosporin, although I'm not advocating that that's my route. But it definitely is being done in patients who have no detectable TNF level. Uh, People are sort of bringing on the concept of uh, going old school. But in essence, tofacitinib, Again, not approved. We don't know the dose for acute severe. You see, this is, again, us making stuff up. By definition, because of the potential rapidity, it's only in about a fifth of patients. It's not like everyone responds over the weekend. But in a small percentage of patients, there was some bowel frequency and rectal bleeding changes, around 20% of patients by day three, Mm -hmm. based on diary cards. So, in essence, the question you're asking is, would tofacitinib replace sort of the prograph, cyclo concept of another acute 
broad-spectrum anti-inflammatory in the short term. Obviously, there's um, the greatest risk is us playing around in a patient. Let's assume albumin, I'm making it up, albumin 1.7, CRP 60, um, and um, patient is obviously resistant, but I think this is where your relationship about safe risk and benefit really comes into play. Now, even when you bring up the risk and benefit of DVTs and go on and on about all of the problems, there's still a significant resistance to surgery, usually due to lack of knowledge about what what it means, and that it's not a permanent bag for life. Does it mean that if you're 17, you're never going to be able to bear children? Like, all yeah. of that that you've read about, especially families, usually a little bit more difficult at initial diagnosis than have, having had the discussion maybe before. So there's a couple things that come into play. So that's sort of my take on where I, I stand on that scenario. For me, surgery is an excellent option in someone who is failing very good doses of TNF, multiple yeah. doses over a week period, whatever we throw at them. Yes. Um, and that's how I sort of feel at this point. I don't know if you've had experience rescuing with um, TOFA at the moment. Or so, TOFA, or as you said, the Chicago approach with TACRO, and someone actually in the audience said even TACRO versus cyclosporin. So... I mean, I don't yeah. know if that matters. I mean, personally, yeah. I think if people are used to using Prograf, they'll use TACRO, um, and easy, maybe easier to control and get them out, out of the hospital potentially faster, depending on how many days you're following the levels. Um, but again, it's like, what are we doing I mean, I don't know what we're doing when we're trying to be in, like, save the day with our cape, you know, and <laughs> trying to pretend we have a solution. How many of these people actually make it surgical-free? A handful. You know, I don't know if you've looked at yeah. those patients you rescued, but we looked at. Rescue is not such a rescue in a lot of patients. I don't know what your experience in the big centers are in terms of trying to rescue a TNF failure. Right. Well, I think one of the first questions, though, is have you really adequately used the anti-TNF? Right. right. So when we said a level, well, I mean, we 11, all, but I, so I mean for the actually, audience that yes. I think people have given, I, and I, we have a lot of second opinions that people have given up on the anti-TNF. They check a level, and the level comes back as four, and they say, okay, they have failed the anti-TNF. One is, you know, four to seven or ten. That is maintenance, and it's probably more Crohn's. That in patients like this, I really push the. The remica- in this particular case, inflict- I would push the infliximab, and I don't really care if the level is greater than 30. And I think one of the problems is people often give up too early on the drug, and you need to make sure you really go for it. Now, if the patient is failing the anti-TNF, um, now we have tried this antibiotic cocktail probably many times, I would say, at CHOP. Uh, I do think you have to be careful uh, about using it, and we have some data, some microbiome studies that are actually showing, depending on the microbiome signature before you start the antibiotics, patients could actually get sicker from the antibiotics. So if people have a significant dysbiosis, they don't tolerate antibiotics very well. And I think we're going to see more on that. It's going to be coming out in the literature soon. But again, we have done that, tried to use that as a bridge to veto. I have one patient where I have done TOFA uh, as a bridge to veto. Um, And my goal is, again, hopefully, this this is ongoing right now, 
to see if they start doing better, then I'll take away the TOFA. Since it is a small molecule, it's easy to take away. If the patient starts flaring, then I realize it's a TOFA, why the patient got better or not because of veto, then I could obviously switch back to the TOFA and stop the veto. Um, you know, from a surgery point of view, I mean, I obviously agree with everything you said. I really am one to get surgeries and surgeons involved very, very early. I think they should get involved when the patients are admitted, when they come into the hospital. It's a lot easier to have the conversation if it's not a done deal that surgery is necessary. Okay. Um, I think maybe it's important to go back a slide to the description of the patient. Um, it's that patient, I think. Yeah, can you, can you go back? Uh, oh, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. That it's, one, the level oh. already, this one, the and I purposely 11 kept 11 was it. good. Yeah. So the reason I thought it was important to go back is I think there are times with a patient who quotes has failed anti-TNF and quotes has failed steroids where in fact there really is no other medical option and yeah. you know they should be going to surgery because I think if they have acute severe UC at that moment and they're failing both steroids and anti-TNF they, they should have surgery. Um, now this patient possibly is a little bit different. Right. Um, I think you're painting a picture of acute severe colitis now, um, although you're kind of justifying that more based on the hemoglobin and the albumin, I guess, um, I assume the symptoms are right. yes. in that category as well. What we don't know, is this patient on steroids right now? And it's possible and, not. And they're not. Perfect. So, yeah, so this so, patient's not on steroids. Yeah. I purposely picked a level that is normal at 11, but not sky high, no yeah. antibodies. No, I think it's yes. important they're yes. not on steroids because right. the thing is, um, infliximab, I think particularly in ulcerative colitis, does not always work, even with good levels. And so there are patients whose response is actually better with steroids than it is with the anti-TNF that you're trying to use to spare the steroids. So this patient's been on infliximab quite a long time, six months, so that's time to have quite a few doses depending on whether you were intensified or not. So this, with that level at six months, I think that's a primary uh, anti-TNF failure. But she might have been a responder to steroids. So you might have the option to get her under control with steroids and then use vetalizumab as a steroid-sparing agent. The way I kind of think about these patients is, do I have the luxury of time? And steroid mm-hmm. is sort of your gatekeeper, meaning right. if you have a patient who is IV steroid refractory, as Anne said, I think sort of right. game is out. Right. So that's the thing. So I agree. So yeah. I think absolutely. So steroids with veto. But if the steroids then we find don't, there is no yeah. response than surgery. So before we sort of tie up this discussion, from the surgeon's perspective again, as well as the gastroenterology team, how do we initiate the discussions? How do we discuss the adverse issues? Um, sort of, again, as a team when we approach this patient. So, Dan. So, I, um, I think from a surgical standpoint, again, as we've all said, the earlier the better we have a chance to talk with the family. Frequently, they'll come in with a handful of 
stack of paper from the internet that they've downloaded about the various terrible things that can happen. Um, but there are also a lot of options to discuss in terms of the actual technique. And I, I think a patient like this would be somebody is, who's inpatient and is relatively sick but not super toxic. You might, uh, I would likely propose to that family that we would do a laparoscopic subtotal colectomy. Um, in my experience, patients get better fastest after that because they're sick. You take out their sick colon, they get better fast. But then could be potentially a candidate to come back for a, um, a so-called modified two-stage procedure and have the ostomy taken down with a pouch and, and done in two stages rather than three stages. But you do, I mean, we always have the discussion, obviously, about pouchitis. Uh, pouch failure is, is very uncommon, but it certainly happens. And then the issues of uh, fecundity and fertility, uh, which, as I referenced earlier, um, the laparoscopic approach, it is a real risk, but I think the laparoscopic approach may mitigate that risk somewhat. So those are all important conversations, and the families want to have time to process that before they go off to the operating room. Um, I'd like to ask a question um, because Bob and the group at CHOP have published on the use of just a diverting stoma in children uh, with chronic refractory colitis. And I'm just wondering um, also what Dr. Allman thinks about that. Uh, you've published on that. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's out yet, but I, I know I've read it. <laughs> <laughs> he has so many publications just, that... <laughs> so, but if we feel that the patient is an ulcerative colitis patient like this patient, I don't think anybody would just divert. Those really are patients more that we have. They're at indeterminate colitis, leaning towards Crohn's disease, where we have diverted those patients. Initially, when we did the first few, we have actually a pretty big set of these patients. Um, at first, I was afraid we are going to like precipitate toxic megacolons, or, but the patients actually do tolerate it quite well, and you do sort of rescue them for the moment. I think where the controversy at our center lies, maybe I'm a little more conservative than some of my junior folks, um, I sort of think it's a rescue therapy. It's not a forever solution. And I do believe that there are a lot of our patients that are out there with ostomies actually doing quite well. The colon's still in there. How long do you decide to say, when is this enough? Uh, we haven't had any colon cancers, but I am concerned about diverting these patients for long periods of time. Yeah, I think it's, we, I have not done that unless I really thought it was potentially Crohn's and then I would just divert them. Um, but in patients where it's not clear, I think you can do a subtotal colectomy. Leave, I would leave a little bit longer Hartman's pouch. You give the pathologist a whole bunch of tissue to work on. And if it's not ulcerative colitis or they respond, you can hook them back up again and still expect that they will have reasonable bowel function in right. terms of you know, number of stools. And I completely agree with that. I mean, these are patients more, there was really nothing to save in the colon, and so it was all, you didn't have that option. Yeah. Um, Fleshner used to say, if a colitis patient responds to diversion, it's a Crohn's patient, meaning yeah. you see patients, you know, should not, by definition of the biology, um, but... So that, and I think indeterminate or patients with rectal spread, like you may have had, I don't know what the characteristics of them, but like you said, there was something that said maybe it was a Crohn's um, phenotype. But like you noted, I don't want anyone walking away thinking a UC-like patient that you're pretty sure without perianal fistulas or like strictures all over the colon 
that a diversion is the answer, no? Okay. I, I and I'm going to actually interject a uh, question from the audience. So one of our uh, colleagues in the audience asked, would you really consider high-dose IV steroids, especially if you're entertaining surgery? Because most surgeons are probably reluctant to consider surgery with high-dose steroids on board. So first, question my gastroenterology colleagues about would you really consider it? And secondly, uh, Dan, your sort of thoughts about high-dose steroids before a potential colectomy. Yeah, that, that is a tough one, actually. I, I don't honestly know what is worse. I mean, I think you're asking sure, the question, assuming this girl good. really had acute severe ulcerative colitis despite high amounts of infliximab in her body, and you're questioning whether it's really wise to give her some steroids. Uh, so what's worse? Leave her as she is with very active colitis and have the surgeon take the colon out, or if she was someone who responded nicely to steroids before, at least settle her down a bit. I don't honestly know. I guess it depends in part when your surgeon can help you. Um, we often have a little trouble at our place actually getting the surgeons to take the colon out in timely fashion. Um, and yeah. I, I personally feel I've been burned sometimes keeping someone off steroids and the colitis in ineffective anti-TNF runs rampant. But so, Dan, though, a, a week of steroids, do you really think that complicates yeah. surgery? Not right. at all. I, my personal preference would be give them the steroids. I would much rather have uh, less active disease, uh, even if it's just temporizing, especially if we're just going to do a, a subtotal colectomy and anostomy. Right. And if you do it laparoscopically, you have four little five-millimeter incisions and anostomy, or three little incisions and anostomy, that the, the steroids... Um, the risk, the wound complications and such associated with that are going to, I would much rather have the mucosa be, or the bowel be in better shape. It's going to heal better. Yeah, because we know that, you know, stump leaks are obviously what people are most concerned right. about. And if you look back, steroids are associated with wound healing. But most of the time, it's because the albumin's one point two because you've yeah. waited so long to operate. It falls apart in your hands. It's like butter. You can't even put the staple on, you know, that that's probably more risky than steroids. And forget about the whole DVT concept of ongoing inflammation. You know, it just, there's so much not goodness about that kind of scenario. Exactly. So before we summarize the session, one more question. Someone had asked, um, if IV steroids, there was a response, would you go to TOFA? But I think we've already said, if we're going to do this, we would probably go to try vitalizumab, correct? But what are your thoughts again? I mean, I guess we're still, I get the sense, we're still trying to figure out how to position TOFA, Sidonib in this situation. Right. I think all, I mean, at least I shouldn't speak for everybody, but myself, I have a lot more experience with Vito than I do with TOFA. Right. And so if I could, and also I think TOFA is, I mean, I, Vito is a safer drug. If right. I could transition oh, yeah. somebody to Vito, why not? Right. Oh, but I would say the PK does matter. So in, right. in even though... Yeah. Um, there is the response or somewhat of response to steroids, and there is a little bit of time. <laughs> Remember, all of these biologics are subject to the same clearance issues. So in someone who has really just, like, pooped out every drop of Remy you ever gave them, for example, if PK is a problem, well, the small molecules right, may this, be... We're talking about somebody who's responding to the steroids. If the kid's not, this kid's not responding to the steroids, you can't wait. 
even six yeah, weeks. Yeah, but I'd also work. say some would argue that was right. why our um, and old school Russ Cohen is actually in the building as we speak. So he made fun of me that I called it old school. Why he follows me to this session, I don't know, but he could probably tell me. He um, wants to be a pediatric gastroenterologist. You know, I'm sure we can find you a good fellowship program. So. <laughs> Russ, you can just nod, but if I understand correctly that at UFC, if PK is a concern and patients have low albumin and higher CRP, would you use PK as a reason to maybe use a cyclopath instead of a TNF path? Do I understand that correctly based yes, on? We, we freely use tacrolimus or cyclosporin in the patient. Now, this patient had a level of 11 for replacement, so that would be concerning yeah. I think before we close out the session, someone did ask so that some of the faculty had mentioned that they would consider pushing the infliximab a little bit more before considering, quote, failure. So if you looked at these levels, I mean, in what scenario would you not automatically say that anti-TNFs that fail this patient, but it may still be worth a shot? Any sort of scenarios, anti-TNFs, possibly worth a shot? Yeah, I know. It's like, this is so fascinating. So I'm like, so again, my question is, if um, if you thought, what would be the criteria you'd use to say, you know what, it's still worth a shot to try an anti-TNF before saying, you know, anti-TNFs have failed this patient? Well, yeah. I think, um, I think the, probably the more important question is, um, when should you call it a day? And, you know, um, you have to do the math, but this patient went six months, supposedly. Um, let's say it was standard induction, so that's six weeks to the end of induction, and therefore has probably had two more doses, I guess. Um, I think, really, if you had a trough level of 11 at the time of the fourth dose, first maintenance, and the patient is active like this, that's primary anti-TNF failure. Thing is, you don't, as Russ was saying, you often will not have a level that high uh, in a setting of colitis, they, you know, especially if you really waited eight weeks after the third dose, so usually it's going to be lower. So you, you need to get your... Um, you need to have your trough level up to above 10, around 10 anyway, um, at the start of maintenance, let's say. I mean, I think this... Do you feel differently? Um, can you say it better? Or? No. No? I say, okay. You said it great. I mean, the, the, 
One thing about PK, which you may have heard in the main meeting as well, is that um, there's sort of this concept of population PK, meaning this is what the median level is that we think is right, versus individual PK, meaning for that individual, is it true that 11 is what they need? I, I do, however, agree with what Anne's saying. However, most people would probably try 10Q4, again, an off-label, what I'm saying, but this is reality of what typically patients come to you, right? They've already been escalated, both dose escalated as well as intensified. <laughs> patients still not responding. Um, but I think the point being is that before people are willing to give up on TNF, I find that a lot of people fight for it, regardless of level. Just, um, and I don't know whether or not what the ceiling is, meaning what Anne's getting to is 11 enough to say that's not working, or do you need 22? There's no, not a lot of data on in this particular scenario, but if by six months with good trough levels, regardless of what dose or frequency, and they have a hemoglobin of 7.5 and albumin 2.1, see ya. Yeah. yeah. So basically, I think some of the take-homes are that know when to call, call it when the anti-TNF's not working. Um, it's okay to use at least a short-term course of IV steroids to see if there's at least some sort of response because the surgeons are not going to necessarily bulk because you decide to do that. Um, a little bit more needs to be known about TOFA, so we'd probably all go to vetalizumab and, again, again actively involve your surgeons sort of from the get-go. All right, so we're going to do one more case. Um, and again, what do you do when anti-TNF stop working? And this is a 17-year-old young male, chronic Crohn's disease, including 35 centimeters of TI inflammation, um, but not necessarily any proximal dilation on small bowel imaging. Um, he initially had been on an immunomodulator, methotrexate, we'll say, um, but due to continued pain, weight loss, diarrhea on his initial therapies, so steroids, um, methotrexate, he was changed to an anti-TNF, uh, initially adalimumab. He did well clinically, had decent levels, but then when he didn't do so well, was noted to have developed antibodies. He was then changed to infliximab with a good level of 12, no antibodies, but has ongoing symptoms. So both clinically has symptoms and also from a laboratory standpoint, anemic, hypoalbuminemic, elevated inflammatory markers, um, but not only having symptoms, abnormal labs, his quality of life has been significantly impacted, and then when you reassess, there is persistent um, imaging uh, findings that show a slightly shorter segment, um, but still 20 centimeters, no proximal small bowel intestinal dilatation. So, again, similar types of questions. What are your options, and how would you position them for um, therapy if you think anti-TNFs have not worked? And I think this may, in part, answer one of the questions that came through to the audience. And so, um, different options, nutritional therapy, how would you position that, and what is the evidence for using this? Um, you know, use tekinumab, if so, and we've already talked about this a little bit, like if you use it, um, you know, what would your target levels be, and then veto? And if so, what would you use to bridge to get to veto? So, and then we'll talk about the surgical questions. Bob, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, nutritional therapy never hurts. Yes. Um, is it going to be the long-term answer for this patient? I don't think so. I mean, do paint the picture of uh, the levels are always pretty good, but the labs yeah. are pretty awful on this patient here. A yeah. uh, little bit of an inconsistency. 
But, I mean, again, I would do nutritional, I would consider nutritional therapy as albumin is so low, he's in benefit from that, but I would probably do that in combination with another approach and not just expect that. Um, with this patient, again, I'd, he's seeing, he, you paint him as not doing that bad clinically, but his numbers look terrible. Okay. I mean, I, I would probably go to use a kitamab. I don't have a target level to use it. You know, I would do the six per kilo, and I don't know how big this kid was. I forget how, oh, how old was this? He's one? 17. So, okay, so that makes it easy uh, that I would do. I would probably give the first dose of usikinumab probably in four, the sub-Q dose in four weeks and then do it every eight weeks and see how the kid does. Uh, right now, if he had pre-stenotic dilatation, I think it would be easy to say what, he should, what should be done about surgery. But I think right now we still need to use medical therapy before we throw in the towel on this kid. Would you even consider vetalizumab? I know that, um, you know, Marla, your group had published on, you know, sort of the sort of relatively slow response in Crohn's, although it can with time. Um, in this scenario, would you even consider? So let's say that for some reason, I mean, let's look at another option. If you used, used uh, vetalizumab, how would you use it in this patient? I'm not saying that that's what you would, yeah. but knowing what you all found in your studies. So there's no doubt that... Um, Vitalizumab has an effect in Crohn's. The problem is, is the TNF exposure piece. If you look at um, which patients in Crohn's do do better, it's within sort of two years of diagnosis, more moderate, and probably the most important predictor is actually TNF naive. So whilst I think that there is a role for Vito in small bowel disease, despite popular uh, thought process that if you look at it, and, we, and actually Jackie, I don't know where she is, Jackie Jossen from our group has in new starts looking, I mean looking at our veto cohort, that TNF exposure was really the biggest predictor of an issue with veto. That being said, um, if you were to use it, again, it may take longer, as we know from Gemini 3, that in patients who were 75% of them were refractory, mm-hmm. it definitely took at least 10 weeks before you saw separation from placebo. <clears throat> and if you um, look at the mucosal healing uh, phase 3B study uh, with Vito out to six months, it was pretty dim for mm-hmm. TNF refractory patients. The mucosal healing rate was 7%. You might as well do nothing. You'll probably get the same SCSCD. So I think we have to be realistic about the mucosa. And I've sort of gained respect for TNF small bowel Crohn's disease patients who aren't responding to TNF. My feeling is, if you're not a responder to TNF, which I don't believe is a very common finding in a small bowel disease patient, I think you need to see the surgeon. I've sort of started right. to look at the biology. Now, granted, uh, nutrition is a bridge to Stellara and try and get a level of who knows what based on the studies. It looks like anything above zero, <laughs> meaning <Yeah. laughs> the, uh, above detectable, going back to like 2006 with TNF, that any detectable level, again, in maintenance, it's not as helpful as it is in induction. So I don't know the answer to this. People are resistant. Obviously, it's 35 cm. It's not 15. So right. there is, I do want to... And granted, it went down to 20. And again, I admit, I, it's not oh, a you went true, down to 20? True, yeah, so, yeah, it went yeah. from 35 oh. to 20, we're I know, now, okay, a little bit. Okay, we're now down to 20. Yay. No, I, right. I use that distinction of 35 because right. it does sort of head mm-hmm. above north of 20 when exactly. we talk about sort of long segment, whatever right. that means, which we make up. That's that this kid, to me, growth failure, hemoglobin of what you showed, this kid needs an operation, yeah. needs to um, 
That's, that's my feeling. I will, of right. course, as usual, they come to me. They don't want surgery. There's no proximal dilation. There's no evidence of stricture right. on endoscopy. I'm going to make that up. Mm -hmm. And you're going to try another target. But I have very rarely rescued a small bowel right. TNF failure with ustekinib. That is my, our, pers our experience at Sinai. Yeah. I guess in that abstract I presented, those, those patients were rescued with usakinumab in that, that pediatric abstract that was presented in Aspigan. Multiple TNF failures. Well, yeah, actually, most of them. Well, I no, no, that it's we looked That's at clinical I mean. we looked at clinical remission, right? If we're going to get say to, if we're going to get to mucosal healing, then we're going to be throwing out most of these drugs. So with those patients, again, they had failed all therapies. They did respond to usikinumab, um, and at least they went into clinical remission. Uh, and this segues right. into the question for Dan. So we've already talked about the role for surgery, and as he's sort of going through this, thinking about what would then be your therapy, let's say hypothetically we went to surgery, which I think we're all in agreement that that is very much in the future, what would you then use postoperatively? So first, I mean, Dan, what are your thoughts about the, the role of surgery here? Um, and how you would like approach it? Yes. <laughs> Done. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of argument here. I, I think for this child, a 20-centimeter segment who's failed uh, TNF therapy is, is uh, with growth failure and is a candidate for a segmental resection, and that's yep. pretty straightforward. So then what would we do therapeutically post-op? So post-had surgery, what would you guys use? I, you know, again, this is controversial, but I would probably, as long as you removed the inflammatory burden that this patient has, I'd probably go back to the anti-TNF, mm -hmm. especially this patient even responded to the anti-TNF the first time he, the kid was on it. So I would probably go back to an anti-TNF. There's data at DDW last year that showed that you could either switch or go back to the original, and they have the exact same outcome. I think where people get caught up is, oh, but he was a Remy failure. He needed surgery. No, the disease itself has probably had so much bowel wall damage that right. anything you threw at it, you know, so it doesn't mean that you're a mechanistic TNF failure. Obviously, ADA, they got anti-drug antibodies, so right. I got that. But I think it's important to note that difference between drug failure versus maybe biologic failure. There's a difference, yeah. And one question is, retrospectively, for both the UC and these Crohn's disease cases that we had, would you... Um, Knowing everything, knowing that Vito is now available in either of these cases before even going to it, anti-TNF, would you have used Vito first? Well, in Crohn's disease, I think uh, anti-TNF is a very effective uh, type of biologic, so I would stick with that for Crohn's. I think in ulcerative colitis, where there is a greater percentage primary non-response to anti-TNF, particularly if they're steroid responsive, I think Vito um, would be a good option there. So if they were sick, I mean, I, I do use Vito first line for them more moderate, mild, moderate cases that I need a biologic. If I have a real sick UC kid, though, I still use an anti-TNF. Okay. Just coming back to that post-op question in this child who, in spite of saying that there was no pre-stenotic dilatation, we're sort of concluding that he had strictured down, and presumably right. there'll be some confirmation of that at surgery. 
So the risk study tried to tell us that anti-TNF uh, was not effective in preventing um, stricturing disease. Um, what do you make of that? Is that an argument to try another uh, pathway post-op, or do you think there was uh, maybe that's not the truth? Well, you go ahead, no, no. Well, I thought that was really a quite interesting finding, <laughs> and I was quite surprised. I wasn't surprised that it prevented perforating disease, but I was surprised that it didn't prevent the progression of stricturing disease. It tells us how much we don't know and how much we still need to know. Um, yeah, quicker. and I guess possibly if when those patients are followed out longer, you may see at a later time point an effect of the early anti-TNF compared to not in preventing the stricturing, possibly. It's funny, when we got out to five years, we didn't see a change in that. That same finding was there. However, um, yeah, interesting, right? So that, we, that separation with non-TNF moving also stuck out to five years. But there's a lot sort of un- to unravel here because there's also the concept of, which we all agree, there was not a central read of the MR, which we are going to sort of take care of that, and we're getting all the MRs those that developed stricturing that didn't change with TNF were going to make sure there was no evidence based on a central read that there was already stricturing, even though they were called not stricturing, number one. I think what was really interesting about what came out of risk more than anything is that there may be a biologic signal at the level of gene expression at the mucosa as well as in the serum um, of this extracellular matrix overexpression in patients who... Um, develop stricturing disease at time of diagnosis. So although there may not be evidence at MR or at the endoscopy, could it be that that's where we're going to stratify patients, meaning that maybe there'll be a proteomic panel that we could pull out and say this patient is someone who's at risk for developing, remodeling, and a lot of matrix deposition, that maybe TNF isn't the right answer. It's, it's entirely possible, but that's what we need to start to explore and I'm not saying that I know for Stellara or Usikin. You're right. I mean, it's just to use one of the other ones, yeah, there's right. no evidence to say that any of the others are any better at stopping that process. So I think some of the take-homes, again, um, in this scenario, I think surgery is a very reasonable option. However, there's some question where the anti-TNF may at least could have possibly worked. So even postoperatively, we'd consider going back to the anti-TNF. And along those lines, very quickly, would you all just reinduce or just go back to the dose they were at if you're going to do an anti-TNF postoperatively? Would you do reinduction? Uh, well, I, I guess it depends also how long there's been the holiday. Right. Uh, you know, I do agree with right. the statements during this meeting is I try to get them back onto the anti-TNF within like two to four weeks. And so if it hasn't been that long, I probably would just go back on to Perfect. The, whatever. I don't even know if this kid was on a really high dose. I might not even follow right. up with that. I might go to the right. five per kilo and not go to maybe whatever this child was on at the time. Yeah, so I guess the important thing is don't forget about your post-op colonoscopy. Because exactly. If you, you know, that's what it's mainly to, about as well is to make sure that we haven't chosen the wrong target. And so let's, that's, I think, even more important. And some would say if this, you know, that there's a lot of people that are dividing on whether or not to resume. Can you wait for the scope? You know, there's a lot of risk exactly. stratification that people are looking at. But in the face of growth failure and the fact that there's probably inflammation in other places other than the gut, I think a systemic therapy other than veto potentially, I don't know, would be helpful in this scenario. 
And that, that very, very yeah. long segment initially, yeah. that's worrying. Yeah. And I think even if you, and I think, again, the post-operative colonoscopy piece is important. I think, Bob, in fact, I think one of your fellows at Naspigan had a nice poster where you all talked about even patients who post-operatively, and maybe I'm just making this up in my mind, but I thought I saw a poster, I think, by Jessica Breton, where um, you all looked at the patients post-operatively um, who were on therapies, and you found that there was still active inflammation in a fair amount of the patients if I remember correctly. So I think, again, the post-op scope is important as well as either having them on a therapy, but regardless, I think the post-op scope piece is sort of a must. I mean, do we really have any good therapy to treat anastomotic recurrence? Yeah, so. All right, so before we tie this up, we have two very quick questions that um, I don't want to ignore the question from the audience. So very quick answers here that have nothing to do with the question, but I'm being a nice person and want to make sure we get these answered. So what is your medication choice for mild Crohn's disease or, quote, only terminal ileitis? We can just go down the row. You guys say what you think. Dan, you get recused from that question. Okay. I'm Marla? not giving you Bob. surgery. This, this is not a patient yeah. I'm sending yeah. to you. Um, okay, so it does, I want to use this opportunity to say there's a difference between mild disease activity and disease severity. Yes. I think it's extremely important to note that a lot of our decisions are based on, okay, today I found three apti in the ileum, um, not taking into account other factors, you know, when we're looking at disease severity. So I just want to put a plug for our disease severity index from the IOIBD. That aside, um, you know, in a patient who's got normal growth, um, has normal labs, has a little bit of ileal ulceration, I may give them a course of anticort and follow them. Do a calpro, monitor them, but I don't have any, I'm not going to put them on ineffective 5-ASAs. There's absolutely no role for 5-ASAs in Crohn's, so I'm not going to put that on. Either I believe they have Crohn's or I don't. That's question number one. And if they came to me, it means they had pain or they had some reason why they came to us. So we have to state that they have symptoms. But does the endoscopic finding on day one predict their prognosis? No data to say that. So I think we have to sort of see how they are and do we catch them at an early point in time. That's my sort of feeling about it. I don't know how, what you're doing in this case. Right. Well, these are sort of challenging ones because there aren't any good studies for these really mild cases. Right. And I do agree. Is this a progressive disease or is it so slowly progressive that we could wait until we understand this disease better 10 years from now? And we all have these patients. Many of these patients, I mean, a budesonide, I think, initial presentation, if they have symptoms, what I have actually been doing is using some diet therapy in these mm -hmm. patients. And we have a, this Crohn's disease diet that we have created. We've done studies with this, looking at the microbiome before starting it. And some of these patients actually are in the studies. Um, and we actually follow their calprotectins. And I've had a good number of patients that have normalized their calprotectins on a modified table diet. Got it. The SCD diet, which, I mean, I'm not an advocate of the SCD diet in general, except for moderate to severe patients, unless they're doing it in collaboration with our medical therapies for various other reasons, for the microbiome, whatever the goal of. But um, interestingly, in the Orthodox Jewish community in New York, it's very common to use the SCD diet. <laughs> and... Um, and it's usually in the face of more mild to moderate, so there's not a discussion. It's not like where I'm stressed that I'm 
letting them progress right before my very eyes, it happens to be in these mild sort of ileitis patients, maybe a capsule that shows a little bit fewer, more ili uh, ulcerations, a little proximal. And I follow their Calpro, and you're going to see the natural progression of whether this disease is actually going to progress in the manner that you usually see, right. or they never flare, you know, this is their treatment choice. So I think these, you have to back off and not be as focused on that every patient is going to end up the way you typically see patients, and there is definitively a subgroup of patients that have mild disease that probably will look the same if you did nothing. That's sort of how I'm seeing the and being old, I have, I have a good number of these patients. Okay. I've been following them for a lot of and years. And it's true, they never change. I mean, they're all in college now, and they, now they're not following any diet at all, but they, those, they yeah. seem like they're they still... They're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow. Yes. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right. I'll tell you about that tomorrow. So I was going to say, with that uh, closing comment, thank you so much.